This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you for joining me on today. And as always, welcome to those of you who are listening for the very first time. We are in the beginning stages of a new smaller series of episodes where we are basically just taking some questions and answers that I solicited from some people in the social media community, the user experience community on a global basis, like, hey, come up with some questions. What would you like for me to talk about on on the podcast? And we received a few questions and there's going to be a surprise. We are going to actually extend this. Uh, I, I spoke for a uh, shout out to the folks at Students of UXD. Uh, I spoke for an event from them. We were addressing the topic of problems with UX education and how to optimize your learning journey. Uh, That took place just a few days ago. And uh, at the time that you're hearing this, actually, it took place on on Saturday, March 6th. Um, And there were so many questions at the end of the presentation that uh, just had an, uh, uh, an idea and said, hey, we didn't get a chance to address all the questions. How about we just do a couple of podcast episodes where we just spend time talking about those questions and everybody loved the idea, the the brain trust there, students of UXD. So they will be joining me in a couple of upcoming episodes and we're going to take a whole ton of questions and there, a lot of them will revolve around education, but that is good. That's fine. Uh, we're talking about everything on this podcast as it relates to user experience. So I'm very happy to entertain my guests that will be with me for those episodes and very happy always to just contribute in general to the well-being of people who are trying to build a career in user experience. That's that's what we're all about. That That's what we're doing. Some people like to paint a picture of those who are more senior UX professionals as being gatekeepers, but when you actually take a look at what's going on, you will find that we're not gatekeepers. We are actually helping to further the cause. We are actually helping to, to, to really try to, to illustrate, to demonstrate integrity and the ethics of the discipline, helping people to understand what they need to do to get better, what they need to do to grow, what they need to do to benefit their teams, their, their users, their, uh, the, the companies that they work for. That's what it's all about. And so uh, we are on one hand, it's a shame. It really is a shame that people would do things like that. That would try to paint a picture of someone to engage in character assassination like that. Uh, On the other hand, hey, you know, we'll just when it happens, we just get up and we talk about it and we will do what they will not. We will present evidence to the contrary to show that we are here to help. Um, they never presented any any evidence that, that supported what they were doing. That seemed to be pretty popular recently. Well, not anymore. We're we're not tolerating that. Uh, I'm not going to sit by, idly by, and and let anybody do that to me. If you're doing it to you, don't let anybody do it to you. 
uh, and then let's all press forward. The, the proof will always come out in the pudding, and I have helped a ton of people around the globe, and they're all doing well in their respective practices. So uh, my proof's in the pudding, and uh, there's no proof in those people's pudding. Matter of fact, they don't own any pudding, if you get my drift. So at any rate, uh, just thought I'd talk about that. I'm excited about the sessions, the upcoming sessions with the students of UXD. And so we will introduce them to you. They will let them tell you about their organization and what they're doing. Uh, who's supporting that and the types of things that that they're doing with their with their operation. I'm excited for them. I'm glad to be able to support them. Let's go ahead and dive in with our second question in this series. And at one time, I thought I was going to address all three questions on one episode. No, I I don't think that's really possible there. There's a lot to cover in each one of these questions. And I am I like to be thorough. Uh, I want to present as much information as I can. I want to answer the direct question and then touch on all of the related elements associated with that question. I think it's important that we do that so that, again, we are thorough. We are touching on the top, the direct topic, the related topics, and we're providing a service by giving this information, helping people to go forward in, in, a, in a great and exemplary way. The next question is, uh, and uh, the person knows, uh, the person who gave this question knows who they are. Thank you. I'm purposely not calling out names at this point in time. With that, just sharing the question. And the second question is, how does one account for the measurement effect during observation-based research methods? So we got a, another research question this week. How does one account for the measurement effect during observation-based research method, methods? Now, for those of you who might not be aware, a lot of times you'll hear someone say UX research. It's almost like when somebody says UX. When somebody says UX, what they're talking about depends on who's saying it, how much knowledge and information they have behind them. When they say it, some people say UX and they are talking about UI. Some people say UX and they're just talking about another aspect of the discipline. It it, it just really depends. I don't want to go down that whole laundry list. I I think you get my drift already. It varies when you're when people say UX, you really need to to verify with them what they're referring to. Likewise, when people talk about UX research, some people have a narrower view of, of UX research, and some people have a very broad view. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those folks that has a broader view. When a person says they're doing research, whether they put UX in front of it or not, that's already pretty broad because research is a very broad discipline, whether it's related to user experience or whether it's just general research. And we, we recently talked about research on another episode and we were talking about formative and summative and qualitative and quantitative and mixed methods. We talked about all of those things. And can you believe people are actually out there now trying to say that mixed methods is the next big thing. They're talking about mixed methods as if it is new. I talked about mixed methods recently. I've been exposed to mixed methods for years. Mixed methods is not new in the world of research at all. As a matter of fact, if you are someone who's interested in research, 
it is absolutely critical that you understand research just like with UX from a broad perspective. You may turn around and specialize later, but you still need to understand the discipline from a broad perspective. And again, not just UX research, but research because any UX research you do is going to be based on things that were happening in the world of research. And there was a ton of research going on before UX came into play. So it's important for us to understand these things because when you do, you will end up with a bigger toolbox. You, you will have a bigger set of resources or techniques and methods to draw from in your work. When I say that I have a broad perspective of, of UX research, there are approximately 99 different methods and deliverables, a lot of uh, elements, compartmentalized uh, of factors, if you will, that you could use in your work at almost any given time. It depends on what is best suited for the type of, of research you're trying to conduct. What are the goals? And when you find out what the goals are, and you uh, determine whether or not it's going to be quantitative, qualitative, or if there's going to be a mix of the two, that's all mixed methods is, is a mix of the two, um, then you can determine what types of research you will perform. So just by way of quick recap, if you haven't heard those those episodes and you're interested in research, I highly recommend that you go and check that out so you can get a broad perspective of what's going on with research. But when you look at research, uh, again, no matter what type of, I'm going to bring it in and home in on UX shortly, but no matter what research you are doing, anytime you engage in research methods that are, uh, they revolve around observation. And, and that's what's meant in the question by observation-based research methods. 99 approximately different methods, all of them are not observation based or observation oriented. So now we just whittled that number down to a few and I'm only going to focus on a few for the purpose of answering this question today. I'm going to talk about design sprints. Some people don't think that those are are uh, observational. I'm going to show you that they are and they do uh, um, they should be uh, something that we consider as we look at this question today. I'm going to talk about ethnography. I'm going to talk about contextual analysis and field studies, and I'm going to talk about moderated usability testing. These are the different types of observation-based research methods that come to the forefront. These are the ones you are more likely to see in the world of user experience. But before we go forward, let's take a quick look. What exactly is the measurement effect? What is meant by that? When you think about observation-based research, we're talking about research that calls for us to look at participants, whether it's one or a group in their setting or in general during standard testing processes or no, whatever the case may be, um, then the, the, the measurement effect is something we need to be uh, aware of. So let, let's define it now. Also known as the mere measure, measurement effect. The measurement effect is basically it's defined as how you measure someone's intentions looking at them. And and when you when you measure someone's intentions, if you question them is a, a better way to put it. If you if you question them about, hey, you know, why did you do that? Can you explain that to me? Um, what's the reason that you chose that? 
Why did you like this one uh, as opposed to the other two or three? When you measure someone's intentions, when you try to, to engage in finding out why somebody did a particular thing from a behavioral perspective, according to the measurement effect, it has a, there's a tendency for that effort to measure intention to actually change the behavior of the, the research participant. Oh my goodness, now we've got a problem. You're trying to conduct research and you ask an honest question and then the participants start to feel pressure. They start to, a lot of times, participants, you have to be really careful. And one of the things I always talk about with UX is that you need to, we must be good at managing bias. We have to be good at, uh, at managing the measurement effect. We have, to, we have to make sure that we have approaches that will eliminate that or drive it to the bare minimum because if anything goes wrong when you're collecting data, your data is now corrupted. Basically, if it, so we have to do whatever we can to try to get our participants to be as honest, forthright, and natural as they can possibly be because if they change their response, based on something we have said or done, your efforts can easily become wasted. And now that impact can transcend all the way to the bottom line, and it will transcend to the bottom line. It's going to reach your bottom line. It's going to display itself there because if you don't know that that you have to protect against the measurement effect and that, that you have to manage the bias of, of participants trying to make sure to keep them in check, keep them from coming into, into play because people don't usually check their own biases. So it is our responsibility as the user experience professional to conduct research in a way that things go as smoothly as possible and that we try to not interfere with the cognitive processes that are taking place during the studies, but let, let me get back to, to this list. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, just, just a tad, but I thought it was important to, to explain that. So again, when you try to measure intentions, it can result in changing their behavior. And if you change the behavior, now you're no longer dealing with that participant. You're dealing with a figment of that participant. And now the data is, is a bit of a mess. So what can we do? Okay. So I mentioned a few methods. Now, uh, I'm going to tackle this low-hanging fruit. In my mind, it's low-hanging fruit, uh, and it's also going to dispel some some uh, notions that a few people have. People don't see design sprints as observational because they think that you're in this session and you're doing exercises, you're brainstorming, people are voting on things, you're doing all types of engaging in all types of activities, and you feel that people are just going to go in there and they're going to tell you exactly what they're thinking and, and, and they're going to come up with ideas and you're not going to have any issues. And that is total malarkey. If you present, if you are trying to lead a design sprint, and by the way, design sprints are not all that great, but we're not going to talk about that today. We're just going to talk about the reality that they exist. This is the way we're approaching it. The reality that they exist and we still have to run them. We're not going to say, no, we shouldn't do design sprints anymore. That's not going to stop anything. The truth of the matter is you are going to do design sprints today, depending upon where you work. So you might as well learn the best way to do them 
And you might as well do it in a way that benefits everyone as much as you possibly can. That is my recommendation. That is the wisest thing to do. Don't try to change the world regarding design sprints. They aren't going anywhere. They aren't going uh, uh, away anytime soon. So you're in the design sprint. You're leading the charge. And when we, the way that you design the sprint, the way that you design the questions, the way that you design the exercises, you must do it in a way where you can present the topics, the questions, the issues at hand, whatever it is that you're in the process of executing at any given time during that sprint. You need to do it in a way that helps people. You, you want to resist the urge to engage with the users. Uh, because that's the thing that can be the thing that triggers bias that and your design, the way you've designed everything, you can trigger the bias or you can trigger the measurement effect. And then you stop getting people responding in a pure fashion. You, you start to get people holding back. You get people that start to engage in, in acquiescence uh, uh, bias, if you will. And people start to do things because they think that that's what you want them to do. I also need to address the fact I, I actually led a sprint not long ago where uh, people said, ah, he should have been more involved. He should have done this, that. No, I should not have. Um, one of the, the misconceptions about leading design sprints or anything where you are leading a group of people through an exercise like that is that just what we're saying here, I, I need to make sure that the measurement effect is not triggered. I need to make sure I, me, you, we need to make sure that the biases that everybody comes into that session with, they are beaming with biases. And if you nudge them the wrong way, just enough, that bias starts to come forth. And now your efforts are, are tainted. Even though you think you did a great job and they all say, oh, they did a fantastic job, but not if you kick those biases off and they don't know it's the user experience professional who has to know what's going on with those biases and to keep them in check. So for that reason, we need to let the people know, here's what we're going to do now. You're going to have five minutes. Go ahead and put everything down. And then after that, we're going to vote. But I want you to put everything out there. Don't hold anything back. Uh, there are no wrong answers. Let's go. Let's go for it. And then you have to back up. And unless someone has a question, asterisk, unless someone has a question, you cannot engage in a way that will trigger the bias, uh, all the different biases and the measurement effect, or you have, you have failed to lead that sprint in a proper way. Now, what was the asterisk for? Well, the asterisk that I just mentioned was there because even when someone asks you a question, you have to be so careful in how you respond to that question because again, we're constantly in the business of making sure not to trigger the measurement effect and any other biases. So you must not interfere with the cognitive process that is at work during observation or you run the risk of detrimentally impacting the data. I cannot say that enough. So let's keep that in mind. So that's the way that you manage measurement effect and biases. I'm throwing that one in there during the design sprint. When it comes to ethnographic studies and ethnographic studies are where you are observing 
participants in their own environment. You're watching them work and you are pretty much silent. Every once in a while, you might say something, but because you might need some clarity, but it, for the most part, you are silent. You are a silent observer and you are just taking in information. You are documenting any and everything that will help you with your efforts. Now, how do you make sure not to trigger the measurement effect or biases during ethnography? Well, you're doing an ethnographic study. You're not talking to anybody. <laughs> That's basically it. You're, you're not going to say pretty much anything at all. So you are observing. You have, you're going to make sure at the beginning of that, let them know what it is you're going to be doing that you're just going to be silent. I'm going to be over here. I'm going to be watching. And, and I might ask you a couple questions here and there just in case something comes up. But for the most part, I'll just be over here off to the side. I'm not going to get in your way. I want to just take in as much data as I can. Thanks for allowing me to come and sit in with your team on today. All right. See you later. And you're out. That's it. So you, you set expectations, you go off to the side, you go wherever you're going to go and you sit there and you take your notes and that's pretty much it. So, uh, standard ethnographic rules. You're not really speaking to users, not in UX ethnography. In, in, other, in other types of ethnography, you might be doing a little bit of talking, but generally speaking, there's no talking. So it's that simple on that one. Uh, we say simple, but uh, probably gathered. It can be a challenge and, and, and you would be right. Uh, but basically you're not talking to anybody. So that's, it's when the dialogue comes in that, that the problems usually arise. Next one, and this is akin to ethnography, you have contextual analysis. Think of contextual analysis as ethnography with dialogue. And you're probably sitting over one or two people's shoulders and you're observing them, but you're engaging and you're talking the entire time. There's a lot of dialogue. And the same thing is here. You may be asking people to clarify things as they're doing them or after they've done them, depending upon what the workflow will allow you to do, uh, but you're just asking for clarity. So you're, you're, you're going to ask them that, why did you do something? You're, you're asking uh, uh, what their intentions were, but basically if you ask them to break down what was going on in the work, you should not have any problems with the measurement effect or triggering biases because they're basically showing you what they do every day. And, and when you do this, I personally, I love ethnography because you're watching people in this specific setting and you, you don't have uh, a huge risk with the measurement effect or with bias with contextual analysis, but it is something that we need to be aware of. Field studies are similar. I'm, I'm grouping that in with contextual analysis because some people think of a field study as contextual analysis and some people think of a field study as ethnography and there's a little bit of overlap there. Uh, from certain perspectives, uh, but it's the same. You're going to ask people to clarify certain things. You're going to be observing them and you're asking them what they've done after the fact. Uh, and, and can you clarify, is this what you do every day? Is this how you handle it every day? You can, you can ask questions that will help guard you against that measurement effect and against that bias triggering. So watch that. Remember you are watching them in all of those ethnography, contextual analysis, or field studies, you are watching them in their standard mode of operation. So the chances of you changing behaviors are not really that high. But if you're working with somebody that might not be that skilled, then maybe they're more of a new uh, worker. Maybe there's a little bit more of a risk there. So be aware of that. 
Then there's moderated usability testing. Uh, a lot of people are engaged with remote usability testing, but moderated usability testing uh, is something that it should be left to more expert people because of the types of things we're talking about here because of the biases that get triggered because people have a, a difficult time sticking to scripts. Um, if you make everything task-based and the same goes for guerrilla testing, we could, we could group that in there as well. If you make everything task-based and just ask people to perform a task, the biggest challenge actually that comes up with this is when somebody starts struggling you would not believe, some of you might, how many people have a problem with this. They tend to have a difficult time holding their peace and they want to help people to get through the problem. If somebody's having a problem performing a task, you need to see that. You need to see why they're having a problem and don't talk to them about it. Just watch them. Just watch them and document what you see. So moderated usability testing and guerrilla testing, both the same. There, unskilled research professionals have a difficult time with that. They tend to want to tell people what to do. They they don't like seeing them struggle. And then when you interfere, you have disrupted the cognitive process, and now your data is, is in trouble. So that's basically what happens with the measurement effect. It's you need to be aware of your risks. You need to make sure that you are being disciplined, that you're holding your peace, that you're only asking about certain things in a certain way. Uh, but the key is do not trigger the measurement effect and do not trigger biases because that will come back to bite you. It will create a problem and you would rather do what I'm recommending to you than having to manage everything after it falls apart. And, and this is another reason, by the way, just to throw this in here when it comes to observation based research as we begin to wrap up now, it's, it, it's really critical if you're just asking people what they think please know and understand that that's not research. That's asking somebody for their opinion. Research is about finding out, it's about uncovering issues and elements associated with behaviors, and it's done to help to help understand and validate design direction, to confirm what is the best way to proceed with a particular initiative, but asking people for their opinions People say one thing and they do another. So if you ask them things like that, that's when you start triggering bias. That's when you start creating problems. That's when you unleash the measurement effect. It's like you just took off the leash and let it go. So let's make sure when we're conducting research, we must be disciplined. We must be very organized. We must be very structured. And when that happens, we can do great things, make great impact for our businesses, we can, we can obtain fantastic wins for our users, and we can help people understand the value that UX brings. All right, folks, that's it for today's question, the second uh, in a series of UX Q&A segments. So time to sign off, everybody. This is Darren Hood, the host of the world of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.